hear these women saying, I wanted to do everything the first year and I wouldn't let my husband have any involvement in the decisions that were made. And then I got so annoyed when he wasn't involved in those decisions that I made as the kids got older. And then I woke up in couples counseling and heard him say, you told me my opinion didn't matter. And then you wanted me to have one? Welcome to Parenthood, where our lives and stories aren't perfect, but very real. I'm your host, Leonie Akidunor, and each week I'll be peeling back the often silent struggle we face as parents and bringing you guilt-free conversations to help you feel seen and heard. It's like group therapy. Leave your judgment at the door. Let's begin. Welcome to the show. Hi, Sean. Welcome to the podcast. So great to have you on. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I was just saying earlier that if we met in real life, I feel like you'd be my bestie. Like bestie you are vibes. So cool. mm, that's <laughs> good. I'm loving everything you put out there. So keep doing your best work. Thank you so much. <laughs> so for those listening, Sean is a content creator and now an author of his Ooh. own book. Woo. Uh, not like other dads. Um, he's also had his own podcast um, and also known across the media for sharing his parenting journey so honestly as a gay husband and dad of boy-girl twins. So absolutely stoked to have you on, Sean, and talk all things parenting with you. I'm ready. Buckle up. Let's (laughs) go. So basically, I... because. As I said, firstly, love, love, love following you on socials. And for those of you who are listening who have not followed Sean, please do so immediately. Go to the show notes and I'll drop his Insta handle there. What made you want to share your parenting journey to the world? It's an accident. Um, I went to school for theatre went to school for musical theater, have trained my entire life as a performer, as an improv artist, as a comedian, as a singer and a dancer. And so showing up and expressing myself on the internet came very naturally to me, but it was not supposed to be a job. I worked for nearly 12 years. My entire professional career has been working in social media. So after I graduated from college, While I was trying to make it as a performer, I got jobs as a social media strategist and as a community manager. And so for a large chunk, my entire 20s, I sat on the sidelines and watched as bloggers became influencers and influencers became celebrities. And I just observed, I helped with the contracts, I negotiated huge deals, I shot campaigns with influencers, and I kind of just set a goal for myself a decade ago. I'm going to do this, but I'm going to sit and wait until I know I'm ready, till I have the business know-how, till I'm mentally capable of dealing with the negative aspects of the job. And when I feel I'm ready, I'll step in. The accident part happened because I had two kids. I went on one episode of The Drum. They were looking for like a queer father. And all of a sudden I woke up overnight with 10,000 more followers and then 10 became 20. And that was the accident part. So yes, I've always worked in social. So I have a lot more skills and know-how and business savvy from behind the scenes than the average person. And yes, it was a goal. I wanted to step into that space and make content, but no, it wasn't supposed to happen when it did. And when it did overnight, you just, you have a choice, either lean in or lean out. And I leaned in. Yes. Love that. How long ago was that? The drum? So the drum episode would have been five years ago and that started a series of media opportunities. I think what I'm most known for, and it's what got me my book, was Mamma Mia's No Filter interview with my husband. Mm -hmm. People heard that interview and it was their introduction 
to queer surrogacy for so many Australians. And to this day, I will get people that say, I had no idea who you were, but I heard that no filter interview. Yeah, that's so interesting. So again, to those listening um, who don't know Sean, I mean, you're obviously not from this country, darling, with your act. <laughs> Could you tell? So, so tell us, I mean, where are you from? And then what made you want to come to Oz? I am born and bred in the state of New Hampshire in the United States. So that's in the Northeast for those who aren't familiar with America, very close to the Canadian border, which I think some people say they can hear in my voice. I lived there, grew up there, went to college there. And then when I graduated, moved to New York City because I wanted to be a star. 30 days before I moved to New York, I went early to see my apartment and to audition for some Broadway shows. I got cut. I went to a bar to drink my sorrows. And I met the man who would become my husband that night at a bar. Josh is Australian, born and raised in Sydney in Balmain. And Over the course of like the 10 year of our relationship, we would come to Australia every two years, you know, for a decade. And I fell in love instantly. It is such a contrast to America (laughs) in almost every single way. And it felt like I lived in a constant state of anxiety. I have a lot of anxiety, but it felt like I was in a constant state of like push, 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 work harder, earn more money. That's very New York. And then I met this Aussie who was like, chill out, mate. She'll be right. Calm down, mate. Let's grab a schooner. Like everything was so chill. And I thought, not only is this the person who is going to teach me to live a more relaxed life, but maybe that country could be. And then when we had kids, it really did seem like the perfect place to raise them as a direct contrast to what was happening in America in 2016 and 17. Absolutely. And I have to say, I'm from Melbourne, but I did live in Sydney for a number of years. I was in Bondi. And that vibe of just like the beach lifestyle and like, you know, the Mm. Sydney Harbour is so sexy. Like, it's just a sexy place, isn't it? It It's so beautiful. I think most Aussies (laughs) take it for granted. It is just such a perfect place to raise children. So many beaches, so many playgrounds, such an outdoor lifestyle, but more importantly, more of a work-life balance, even though it might not feel like that to a lot of Aussies who are working really hard in comparison to America, where I would work 60, 80, 100 hours a week to try to get to the next level. And then my first job in Australia, my boss closed my computer at 530 and was like, mate, you're going home. Like, I was like, oh, we are not in Kansas anymore, are we? <laughs> I love that. And it's interesting because I actually, um, I studied in the States. So I studied uh, for a semester at USC. University oh, amazing. Of Southern California. Yeah. Loved it. Love going back and seeing all my friends. Such a vibe. Yeah. Um, but one thing I noticed, and even with um, friends of mine from college in the States who came to Melbourne and studied at Melbourne Uni, which is the uni I went to, mm. um, they the one thing that they felt was a bit of culturally jarring was the fact that we're not, I guess, generally as open socially yep. as the American. Americans are. And I noticed that as well. Like I'm in America, I'm in like office depot. I'm like looking for stationery and some guy just walks up to me. He's like, yo girl, what's, what's, what's going on? You know, and I'm like, ah, oh, stranger danger. Like, I don't know who you are. Like, oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> but did you notice that? Like, that, do you feel like we're more kind of, you know, timid here culturally? Hmm. It's actually not an observation that I've had. Exactly. I think what's unique about America for people who haven't spent a lot of time there, is unlike 
a lot of other countries, America is 50, no, it's 30 countries wrapped up in one. If I was to be as honest as possible, it's probably about seven different countries wrapped up in one as far as the cultural, social, political nuances and differences. And so there are parts of the United States, the Midwest, where when you walk down the street, Every single person is going to say hello to you. They're going to open the, your own car door for you. They're going to ask to hold your groceries. Like they are going to insert themselves into your life in a very positive way. But then there are places like Los Angeles and New York where people are going to shove you out of the way to get where they are going. <laughs> and so I think Australia has a lot of those nuances, right? I, uh, my experience was people were very friendly here, um, but maybe had less experience with people like me. And so my observation of their cultural or social acceptedness is different because I was a gay dad, a queer dad, and people were just expecting that I was straight, that there was no other possibility. Whereas all the places I've lived in America, they've moved past that. So if we all potentially, I mean, it'd be interesting your thoughts where, where we are today. Cause I mean, how old are your children now? They're turning six. Yeah. Do you think that there's been a shift in the last six years? Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, the reality is when I moved here, gay marriage wasn't legalized and now it is. And so there are more visible queer couples just on the streets let alone in the media. I think we have a long way to go as far as media representation in this country. In America, there's a lot more queer representation on every single channel. Here, we're a little bit behind. Specifically in the parenting space, there are like three or four queer people that some Australians might know about, and there's probably zero that every Australian knows about. And so until we get there, we're far behind. I think... A lot of queer liberation occurred in the United States and in the UK. And so some of the more predominant voices uh, have been leading the charge. A lot of the queer media representation throughout the 90s and early 2000s are all American shows. It's the original Queer Eye. It's the, um, of course, now I'm blanking on like any other show, which is probably a part of the problem. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, it's really interesting. So you come here with not much of a village of support. You're a parent. We know how imperative it is to, you know, as much as possible, have that village, even though a lot of us don't really even have that these days. But particularly for yourself, your family's not here. What was that transition like for you? It was really terrible. I can't think of a of a worse experience. I can't think of a worse time in my life. And I would not recommend that to anyone. Because of travel and technological advancements, we are moving further and further away from village-like structures and support systems. And this is not just when it comes to parenthood. This is just the new human experience. If we can pick up and move away from our family and experience the world, we do. And that is absolutely a part of the Australian culture right? It's a, it's an entire society built off of people coming here and therefore are more likely to be accepting of their children going and seeing the world. And because of that, we are finding ourselves 
yo-yoing between generations and feeling like we need to do things on our own, that we have to have our own answers, that we have to try things very differently. And that's a very new concept as far as human societies and parenthood goes, right? Like we survived this long by living with our grandparents and our great-grandparents and them passing down their knowledge and us respecting them, but most importantly, relying on them for support so that we could go fend for our family or go out and get a job. And now, because of that transportation and access to moving and maybe even economic crisis, we're just trying to find places where we can live. And and we're choosing, a lot of us, to live further and further away from those that we love. And I think to arrive in a new country with two-month-old twins, with a husband who went to work the week after we landed, with no friends, no family on my side or my husband's at the time, and no network, you're, you've set yourself up for failure. Parenting is not possible on your own. It is. Of course it is. People do it all the time. It's just not emotionally sound. We need support. We need breaks. We need help. And in times when we're struggling, we're usually not capable of leaning into actions and techniques that will help us get back to being happy, right? You can't stress yourself out of a stressful situation. You can't be really sad. And that sadness was not going to bring you out of sadness. You have to have had that support system in place. And for most people, the best way to do that is the support of those they love. And so, yeah, it is like looking back on it. I think Josh and I think we could have avoided so much if we had maybe moved here sooner or delayed the move or came here periodically to build networks or have done more research ahead of time and use technology to ensure that we could insert ourselves into communities so that when things got tough and I wasn't capable of coming up with new ideas that were going to help me get out of that sadness or frustration that I could have done it. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a new problem. It's happening to a lot of people. And I think there are some ways to avoid it. Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting hearing your perspective. I want to hear, and I know you've spoken about this in the media a fair bit too, you weren't overly welcomed into the mothers groups here. I mean, that is an opportunity for many people to connect Mm. with people within the same suburb and things like that who have had just had babies. Talk to us about your experience with that. The system in Australia, and this is the same system in every country that I've ever read about or spoken to another parent from, they as a part of like our government scheme to support parents, there's access to to parenting groups. And for most of our time on, I I was going to say on earth, but that's obviously not true for a very long time. That group has been a mother's group because the mother was in almost every single family, the primary parent, even when they evolved that option and had parent groups, all of those networks in every state in Australia comes from the hospital you give birth, or that's the first option. And then I guess the second one is using online resources to find like inner West moms, for example, if you're a new South Wales or Sydney local and you need to apply online to be accepted on Facebook. And then once you're inserted into that group, you can find additional ones. You can go onto the new South Wales government website. You can go onto the ACT government website or the Victoria website government And search through families and you'll be able to find those groups. But what happens if you move here after your kids are born? I've heard from so many women who said, I moved here from India 
when my kids were nine months. I moved here from the UK when my kids were one. There isn't a way for those hospitals to support you. And most of those groups, not only have they disbanded or restructured or two kind of dropped out, it's hard for parents to find a way in when so many of those connections have already been made. For me at the time, and so we're talking six years ago, I was not in a good enough mental headspace. I guess that's the other problem. Like, it's not like Sean from today was trying to find support. It was Sean who was struggling emotionally. It was Sean who had two babies and was was depressed, trying to find a solution. And so I called the hospital, the local one, and she was just really confused. She's like, did you get birth here or not? And I was like, no. She's like, I can't help you. Like, we, we connect people who have given birth here. How old are your kids? And go on the website. So I went on the website and I saw mother's groups. So immediately I'm like, well, that's not for me. I did find out through a friend of a friend of a friend that there was like a rainbow families meetup. And I went to, um, two of those, but I couldn't find my people because I felt, and I still believe that my people who had the same experience as me were women. It's my safe space. Those are my people. They always have been. And I imagine they always will be. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to see at the table, with primary parents, but, but, but women. And I, so then I did the third thing I could think of, which is go to the parks and find the mother's groups, just eavesdrop, go to the cafes, look for the groups of kids around your age and you find them. And I did, I found two, but one in particular who was meeting at the park on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And I stalked them, girl. I was like, I gave them names based off the sex in the city characters. Cause they had the same hair. I was like, that's Carrie, that's Miranda, that's Samantha. And I just was like, I'm going to, I'm going to manipulate my way into this. I'm a fabulous gay man. I can do that. I have the skills. And so I tried my best and I got my way in and I went up to them at, you know, one of the girls on a random day. And I was like, yo, we have kids the same age. You're the local mother's group from the local hospital. Can I can I come in? Like, here I am alone. I'd love to join. And the look on her face, babe, she was like, so we decided recently to not let guys in. Like, you have to understand so much of what we talk about is very private. And I get that. In those early months, crack nipples, vaginas being ripped open. Listen, I've done the education. I understand. And in that moment, I felt even though it was just one rejection, I was so depressed at that time and struggling so much that that one rejection felt like a rejection to all mothers and all mothers groups. And so I decided you'll just do it on your own. And that's what I did. You would hear from a lot of other parents. Mm. What are you feeling is going on out there? When I wrote this book and people started coming up to me and men at my kid's school saying, I read that chapter and that was me 35 years ago, or that was me 15 years ago, or I wasn't welcomed either. Or a wife saying my husband switched three months in to care for the child. And all the women basically didn't talk to him when he would show up. The truth is in retrospect, I think what I would have done is done more research. And again, I'm not from this country, not from Sydney. My husband had been gone for 12 years. So he, it's, he, he was moving back to a new place too. Yep. 
I wish that we had done more research into figuring out where queer people were. Because now we live in the like proper inner West in Petersham. We've lived in Glee before. Lewisham, Summerhill, Merrickville, these places where a lot of young, creative people choose to live. And that means lots of young, queer families. But more importantly, sexuality aside, lots of accepting people. Balmain, even though I'm obsessed with Balmain, just wasn't that. And so I think if you're coming from another country, it's something to take into consideration. Add to the list of things you have to do figure out where my people are so I'm more likely to find a group before I go that are likely to accept me. And so, yeah, I've heard from a lot of people who said that same year, I was two neighborhoods over and there was four men in my group. We would have loved to have had you. But I constantly just go back to the fact that I wasn't in a good mental headspace. I didn't have the drive, the determination, the savvy to find another solution. When the first and second and third didn't work, I thought, this is it, I'm done. Yeah, it's so interesting. We are briefly interrupting today's episode to give a shout out to a non-profit that the Parenthood Pod is proudly supporting, the Nappy Collective. Parents do their best with what they have, but what if even at your best, you can't put clean nappies on your child? Meanwhile, in other families, children grow so fast, leaving parents wondering what to do with their leftover nappies. The Nappy Collective connects those unused nappies with families who need them the most. The Nappy Collective invites you to donate your leftover nappies to one of the 500 collection points across Australia, letting families in crisis know that somebody cares. Go to thenappycollective.com and see the show notes for further details. And I, you know, if I reflect, I live in South Yarra here in Melbourne. I don't know if you know Melbourne well, yeah. but it is sort of an inner city suburb, mm. which, you know, again, perhaps, you know, yeah, more accepting than perhaps other places. But it is so crazy to me that we're still having these conversations mm. and that it's not like, it's literally like go and find your people and know the areas. Like, yeah, I really, you know, hope generationally this sort of continues to change and head into the you know, a, a better direction. Um, mm. I want to change tact a little bit. So I'm curious, how did you then, given, you know, new country, not much of a village, struggling and feeling like doors are slamming in your face when you're looking to, you know, just gain a little bit of connection with those around you, at what point did you start feeling better about the move? Like, were you in this sort of stagnant, depressed state for, for a while? Talk us through it. Yeah, I would say until the children were probably nine or 10 or 11 months. So seven, eight months into living in the country is when I had what most people would deem a breakdown. Um, I knew that I was depressed. I have struggled with mental health in the past. And so I, it was clear struggling showering, struggling eating, not wanting to go outside, crying and absorb like constantly for the randomest things, not reacting in sensible ways to my children, to my husband, lying a lot to my family on the phone and my friends so that they thought everything was fine when it wasn't, to my husband so that he thought that I was capable of raising our children, right? Because he's just going away each day. And so I when he comes home and says, how was your day? I can't be like, I cried for eight hours. Like, why would I do that? 
And so I really was just kind of like struggling and trying my best to keep my head above water, right? Over the course of those months, things did start to get better in small, manageable ways. Josh's parents relocated from the UK to Australia. That gave me a small life raft once or twice a week. Um, I started to work out. That gave me a small life raft twice a week, right? And so little baby steps. But it, as anyone who struggled with mental health will be able to attest to, it's like a roller coaster ride. Like you can peek your head above water because you go to one gym and then you just drown again, maybe two days later when it gets too difficult. It all got better because of the breakdown. So I had a plan to escape. I had been workshopping it for months. I had been doing research. I had been thinking about the right country. I had been thinking about like doing the work to get over the harm I would cause my children or my husband or my family if I disappeared, thinking about the, the places that people had successfully disappeared to, looking at the airport flights, where would I leave the car, all that stuff. And one night I had a really bad night. Um, middle of the night, stubbed my toe. Kids aren't listening to, or aren't responding to the normal tactics of like the dummy or the milk. Stella is in one hand. Cooper is in the other. I'm sitting in a pretzel on the floor and I just feel the shit like leak down my arm in isolation. It's like, Oh, another poop. But it had been, you know, the 55th night of three hours of sleep. I stood up, I dropped the kids in their crib terrible parenting, slammed the door, walked into Josh's room. And I said, they're your responsibility now, took the keys, got in the car, drove to the airport and just stood there with one foot on the ground and one foot in the car and thought, you need help. Like, this is it. This is the worst case scenario. You need to be checked in somewhere. So I went home laid next to my husband. And when he woke up, I said, I need to be checked into a mental institution or something. I can't, I can't continue to parent. And that was the beginning of the end. It's a terrible moment in my life and a moment that I'm very embarrassed about, especially because I make a living as a parenting creator and media personality that people know of as a very fun, loving father. But in that moment, turning to him and saying, I need help, he took the weight off my shoulders. He booked the appointment. He walked me to the GP. He made sure that we understood the options available. And then my GP was able to get me into Tresillion, which is a wonderful national network that allows parents who are struggling with sleep deprivation to go and get help. I was diagnosed with postnatal depression because of that breakdown with my GP, put into an ongoing relationship with a therapist, put on medication. And all of that happened in a, you know, kind of a month period after that escape to Mexico trip. And so it's terrible, but also is, was the greatest thing that could have happened to me because then I got the help I needed. Then I had the clear head. Then I started to enjoy parenting. And I'd say from that nine month point to probably 14 months of readjusting to medicine and readjusting to a clear head is when I woke up again and, and I was Sean again, and I was able to become a great dad, but it took time. 
Wow. And what things did you put in place? And I'm thinking for those listening who feel as though they are struggling, perhaps not even necessarily to the extent that you were, Mm. but they're feeling overwhelmed and things like that and they don't have the village. Did you start getting external support? I don't know, a nanny or a daycare centre or something to support you with the kids? Like how did that go? Yep, that's exactly what I did. So I had this vision and it's a vision that so many women I speak to on a regular basis have. I'm going to be a stay-at-home parent. I want to be. I want to do it like my mother did is something I hear a lot. And I really wanted that for myself. And I believed that I was going to succeed at it. And sometimes that idea of how great we're going to be gets in the way. And so when we start to fail or we don't enjoy it the way we thought we would enjoy it, or we miss work a little bit more than we thought we would, we feel that we can't speak up. Because it goes against generations of women who successfully did it. And so for me, it was this battle of, I knew what I needed. What I needed was to not be a a stay-at-home parent, unfortunately. Not five days a week. What I needed was to balance that out with maybe two days in an office. What I needed was a babysitter that I could lean in on so I could go on date nights. What I needed was maybe a nanny to come in. What I needed was support cleaning the house. But I just kept suppressing those needs because I needed to save face. I needed to show the world that I was a good enough parent to these kids through the lens of the ideal mothers that we all know and that we all read about and that we probably were raised by. And so for me, like when that breakdown occurred, Josh and I were able to sit down and go, well, what do you need? to ensure that you can be the best dad, but also just the best person possible. For me, I think it's really important that as parents, we are open to reevaluating on a very frequent basis the systems we put in place, either with our partners or our village, like monthly, quarterly, every three months, sit down and go, is the system we've created and invested in working? I think because of our work structures and relationships with bosses, or maybe the constant pressure from society to be stuck into a routine. We think we can't deviate when things aren't going well, but my business brain knows that that's ridiculous. As a business person, we know if something's not working, fix it right away, fail often, fail fast, figure it out, like change, 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 whatever's going to get us to a place of good. And so for me, the recommendation is Set up a system with your partner or your village or your family that allows you to evaluate if things are working. Maybe it's a weekly meeting every Sunday where you sit down and have coffee with your partner and you say, how was the week for you? What were the highlights and the lowlights? Are you happy? Are you enjoying everything? Um, Is your plate too full or can you take on more? And then those conversations, it's like a muscle, right? You continue to work on those conversations, communication gets easier, and that increases the likelihood that if things aren't working, you're going to be able to say that. And that's like a, a micro way. But if that feels too intense or annoying, or maybe you and your partner don't communicate that well, maybe you stretch it out. And every three months, you re- revisit and say, am I working too little or too much? Am I with the kids too little or too much? And am I doing too much around the house or not enough? How can I support you? I think if we all started to do that on a more regular basis, we open up the opportunity for honesty. And when we open up the opportunity for honesty, we're able to get the life raft that I was missing more frequently because it's built into the relationship. 
that also paired with a more ongoing relationship with our village, I think those two things together create happier families. So the village aspect is how many times have you offered to a mother or father to help them out? And even when they say no, have you showed up? Have you made a meal for them right after their kids were born? Did you tell them you don't have a choice? I'm coming over so you can shower and take a nap and I'm watching the kids for three hours. If we can void of them doing it for us, throw that out of the door. Just focus on what you can offer to the people in your life. If every single person listening called one of their newer parents in the first two or three years of life and said, I'm coming over to help whether you like it or not, and did that, I think in return, they would scratch your back. That's a village. And so if we're constantly communicating with our partners or our village or our friends about what's working and what needs to change, and we get over this idea that everything always has to be the same, and we are constantly helping others in our village with parenting, which sets a, sets a precedent that they can help you too, I think those things together would allow a little bit more flexibility. So when things aren't working, we have the systems in place to fix them. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I think, you know, over, I don't know, now over 90 episodes of this podcast where I've been speaking to parents, both mums and dads, that's sort of our point of difference as well, very much giving dads a voice um, in the conversation and their experiences. What the biggest lesson and biggest learning, and it's something we all know, is that you can't over-communicate. You're better off, particularly in a relationship, communicating as regularly as possible. Mm. I think the thing that, you know, prevents us from doing so often is, I don't know, we either get lazy or it's the kids or it's the busy life and we just keep, you know, chugging along. But really having, I love that, having, you know, a monthly or a couple of monthly sort of check-in where you sort of say, is this working, is Mm. absolutely critical. One thing I want to talk about is the mental load because I think this definitely comes into it, right? So, even though let's call it, you know, you, you've got your job, but you are still, I'm assuming the more primary caregiver for the children. Is that still the case? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious because I know one of the biggest challenges and one of a very common theme over the 90 plus episodes with, with um, parents is this whole thing where often, often the mother on average is feeling as though they have to deal with the mental load and they'll often feel resentful Mm. if they feel there's an inequality around that. Um, Or perhaps they're not communicating effectively with their partner to let them know that they're, you know, they're not happy. So Mm. I'm curious from your perspective and also in speaking to other same-sex couples, you know, is, is that still, you know, from your, from your yeah, perspective, experience, is that an area of resentment for you? And is it sort of very common regardless of your, your relationship structure, same sex or otherwise? I think it's a, a heterosexual thing. Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> that's a gross, as you know, I'm, that's maybe a generous statement. But when I talk to a lot of queer people, And it might have something to do with the fact that the queer community in general, those people spent a lifetime being ostracized. They're very used to being on the sidelines watching the game while everyone else plays it. They're used to like the queer communities are much more open, open sexually, open politically, open, you know, about sharing their truths. We have reputations and they're true that we're, you know, much more open and communicative about our needs. And I think that does come from when you are a black sheep, anyone who's diverse gets better over time about being sympathetic and empathetic of others. 
And because the script doesn't work for us, the parenting script, we're forced to overly communicate to figure out how to make it work. We don't ever fall into the trap. I mean, not always of you do, you clean, you cook, you watch the kids and I go to work. Why? Because you're a woman and I'm a man. That doesn't happen. Now, again, a lot of queer people trip down the same path and end up one day waking up and going, why did, how did you become the mom? And I became the dad, but we're both men. And so I want to acknowledge that, but I do think men are raised still to this day with less of a focus from a very young age. I, th- I know it's changing, so I'm really happy about this, but like all the generations before us, but what it means to be a man, toxic masculinity wrapped up in there a little bit, but the idea of being the breadwinner and supporting your wife while she watches the kid was still really prevalent, like all the way up until the last 10 years, probably. And women, there is a lot of societal pressure, even in the modern age of feminism, when women are able to work, there's still a lot of societal pressure from other women about what it means to be a good mother. Well, guess what? When you're gay and you can't legally get married and there's no one having kids, you don't feel that pressure. It doesn't exist because guess what? You don't even get a seat at the table. And so when you get a seat at the table, you get to go, oh, I guess I get to create my own system. And so I feel for people, women in particular, who feel trapped and stuck with a lack of support. But I also know that I had an opportunity to rewrite the script. And if I do, so do you. That the societal pressure from your own mother or all the women also depends on your culture, that there's a lot of it coming, but you can't ignore it. You can find a partner that you communicate with. You can, when searching for a partner, look for someone who is going to be as supportive as you hope one day when you're a parent. It's tricky because it's not what everyone wants to hear, but I do think that man plus woman comes with so much historical precedent for what it means to love and man plus man does not. And naturally that's a gift that we were given. The reason I wrote the book is so that women, it's for women basically would pick it up and go, he's so different. Oh my God. All of the parenting experience he has is are just like mine oh my God, I could rewrite the parenting script too. It's not just a gay thing. So I know that's a lot, but that's how I feel. Yeah, I love that. That's really, really interesting perspective. I'm curious as well, another hot topic for um, couples is the physical touch piece and feeling completely tapped out. Now, obviously, if you're the birth mother, there's the element of if you are breastfeeding, you've got someone sucking on you and you've got milk coming out in every direction and your body feels gross and all the good things, right? Yes. Uh, and so therefore, a partner comes up and like wants to put a hand on your lap and you're like, don't even breathe Get away too loud. I'm curious from your perspective, and again, speaking to other same sex couples, you know, do you feel physically tapped out when you have a young child? Yeah. I mean, of course, I think it's Mm. after the birth and the breastfeeding, which I will never pretend to understand after that, everything is the same. And so after a day of being the primary parent and your child having 44 meltdowns in the middle of a grocery store and you've abandoned a cart and you've come home. And then right after that shit dripped down your 
back and then you missed 14 phone calls and then you dropped a plate and it shattered. Like, yeah, if you think for a second, I even want to watch something with you on and on the couch, like, no, you're wrong. I will say this and I hope this is valuable. There is a lot of conversation happening now about looking in the mirror and acknowledging when you might be part of the problem. We very much live in a society of like, he's the problem. I'm here with the kids all day and he doesn't get it. I don't want to have sex. And he does. He's the problem. And I've heard so many beautiful women recently kind of opening up and sharing stories where they are putting themselves in those situations. Sometimes, sometimes they really want to be, and it's kind of, a part of the experience to complain about it. And I'm, there's no judgment here. I, I get it. We want to be the mom. We want to step away from work. We want to take on the responsibility. This is me too. Like I wanted all those things. And then you're struggling and you can't look in the mirror and blame yourself. So who do you look at? Your partner. And you go, you get to go to work all day and that you don't even understand. Like it's just a part of the journey. And I've heard two stories recently that I think are really valuable here. A beautiful couple, straight couple, lost their child 14 months in, an, a, an accidental death, and they lost their child. And when they decided to have a second child, they sat down and said, should we do anything differently? We have one of these rare opportunities that very few people are going to have. What do you want to do differently? And he like sheepishly raised his hand and said, here are all the ways I felt useless in the beginning. Here are all the ways I felt disconnected from my kid. Here's where I think we set a dangerous precedent that you were the primary in every physical way and how that seeped into you being the primary in other ways. And here's how I think we could fix that. It was hard for her to hear her husband say, I don't think you should exclusively breastfeed because I think I should be involved 50% of the time to give you a break. That was hard for her because Bresta's best messaging had hit her in every direction and she just knew that that's what she wanted to do. But I think when you're queer and you go down that journey, those conversations are forced and I would encourage women listening who are hearing this and, and maybe understanding a little glimmer of this. Cause I, again, it's women who are telling me this. I, I, this is not my experience who are saying sometimes we put ourselves in situations that accidentally set a lack of balance in our relationship and men aren't really great communicators on average. And so they don't speak up. It took the death of a child for a husband to feel that he could say, actually, I think I need to be involved more and here's a way. And that was hard for her to hear, but guess what? She did it. They pumped, they supplemented with formula. And from the very beginning, he felt more actively involved. And guess what happened? As the child grew up, he remained actively involved. So that physical element had a massive impact in the long term. And so it's something I guess I, I think is valuable because I hear these women saying, I wanted to do everything the first year and I wouldn't let my husband have any involvement in the decisions that were made. And then I got so annoyed when he wasn't involved in those decisions that I made as the kids got older. And then I woke up in couples counseling and heard him say, you told me my opinion didn't matter. And then when I had, and then you wanted me to have one. 
And this isn't just women, right? This happens in queer couples, but I think it's something we all have to do. Look in the mirror and ask yourself, you're expecting a lot from your partner. Are you giving everything back? And have you asked them, no gender attached, have you asked your partner, are you getting everything you want from me? It cannot be. We cannot speak in isolated groups and echo chambers of people just like us. If you're only going to a mother's group with three other moms who are just like you and you're all complaining about your husband who's failing you, ask yourself, should we talk to the husbands and see they do the same thing behind your back? Don't get me wrong. Men speak in isolation and complain about their wives, but I constantly wonder what would it look like to have conversations about how we can actually fix it? That's what I would love to see. And that one couple really opened my eyes to the possibility that maybe we are all just following a script and maybe it's harming some of us. Mm, I feel like that's such a mic drop moment. Mm. You speak so well, Sean. I a hundred percent agree. I want to, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your book. I know you've touched on it already and also how people can find out more about you. Sure. Well, my book is called Not Like Other Dads. I was approached by HarperCollins two years ago to write it. They saw a space in the market. And it's interesting because that moment aligned with me becoming obsessed with learning more about my community. We don't learn about queer history in school. I didn't ever read a queer book or a love story ever, really, until I was into my 20s. And so I was at the library and I was looking and I just asked her, I was like, are there any like queer memoirs about parenting? She was, you know, and they couldn't find any and I couldn't find any online. And then HarperCollins approaches me and it was like, wow, what an amazing opportunity. And I always chase down opportunities. And so, yeah, I wrote the book as a way to share that journey with others, uh, empathetic allies who want to understand more, but also I felt that I had been given such a great gift, which has been highlighted on this podcast, I think a lot. Being queer when I was younger was like the worst thing in the world and I wanted nothing to do with being gay. And as I've gotten older, I've come to terms with the fact that it's such an amazing gift and a superpower because it has forced me to really look at the way the world works and figure out where I fit in. And writing this book was like, I really feel like I have been able to create a parenting relationship with my husband and with my kids void of a script, no pressure from others. I just tried to make it work for us because the script didn't work. And All the time online I hear, I've never thought of it that way. Wow, what an interesting insight. I can't believe your husband and you came up with that. We had no choice. And so I think everyone has access to that. That's what the book is about. Flip through the stories of my journey and you will realize sexuality actually has nothing to do with it. You, as a heterosexual person, have an opportunity to make sure that the script that has existed for hundreds and thousands of years... Make sure it actually works for you and your partner. And when it does, it works better for the kids. They turn out better. And that's really what it was all about. I wanted an opportunity to show people the possibility. And so you can get it everywhere, uh, like all the bookstores and online at Booktopia and Big W and 
it's bright and yellow and has a nice little rainbow on it. So I'm sure you won't miss it. My face is on the back. And if you liked what you heard, you can also come to my Instagram. That's where I, that's where I hang out most. That's where I make a living. I like to say in podcasts like this, these concepts, these topics, these conversations are not had a lot. Parent, we talk a lot about parenting, but queer parenting, we don't always get a seat at the table. If things came up for you, I'm the type of creator who's very open to conversations. I carve out chunks of every day to talk to my audience. And so if you're listening and you're like, fuck this guy, I don't believe in that. That offended me. Or, wow, I've never thought of this. Dive into the DMs. Follow me on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Oh, I love you so much, Sean. I could literally speak to you for hours. <laughs> thank, you. Um, thank you so much for coming on, for sharing your story, for sharing your wisdom. You're an absolute gem. And um, speaking from someone who is in the parenting space also, you know, with the pod and Instagram and stuff like that, um, like I just I hope we can have so many more of you, you know, um, representing, you know, what you stand for. So thank you, thank you so much again. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. Want to contribute to the conversation? Hit us up on Instagram at Parenthood Pod and join our Facebook group. Until next time. Thanks for listening. The Parenthood Podcast would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we produce on, the land of the Wawandri people. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging.